Chapter 14 of The Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Chapter 14 The Reign of Ivan the Fourth continued from 1552 to 1557 siege of kazan artifices of war the explosion of mines the final assault complete subjugation of kazan gratitude and liberality of the tsar return to moscow joy of the inhabitants birth of an heir to the crown insurrection in kazan the insurrection quelled conquest of astrakhan the english expedition in search of a northeast passage to india the establishment at archangel commercial relations between france and russia russian embassy to england extension of commerce the russians had now been a month before the walls of kazan ten thousand of the defenders had already been slain the autumnal sun was rapidly declining and the storms of winter were approaching. Secretly, they now constructed, a mile and a half from the camp, an immense tower upon wheels and rising higher than the walls of the city. Upon the platform of this tower they placed sixteen cannon of the largest caliber, which were worked by the most skillful gunners. In the night this terrible machine was rolled up to the walls and with the first dawn of the morning opened its fire upon the dwellings and the streets. The carnage was at first horrible, but the besieged at length took refuge in subterranean walks and covered ways where they indomitably continued the conflict. The artillery placed upon the walls of Kazan was speedily dismounted by the batteries on the tower. A new series of mines beneath the walls were now constructed by the Russian engineers which were to operate with destructive power hitherto unrecorded in the annals of war. On the 1st of October the Tsar announced to the army that the mines were ready to be fired and wished them to prepare for the general assault. While one half of the troops continued the incessant bombardment, the other half were assembled in the churches to purify themselves for the conflict by confession, penitence, prayer, and the partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The divisions then exchanged, that the whole army might prostrate itself before God. Ivan the Fourth himself retired with his confessor, and passed several hours in earnest devotion. The night preceding the assault there was no repose in either camp. The Kazanians, who were anxiously awaiting events, had perceived an extraordinary movement among the Russians, as each battalion was guided to the spot whence it was to rush over the ruins immediately after the explosion. Forty-eight tons of powder had been placed in the mines. The morning of the 2nd of October dawned serene and cloudless. The earliest light revealed the Russians and the Kazanians each at their posts. The moment the sun appeared above the horizon, the explosion took place. First the earth trembled and rose and fell for many miles as if shaken by an earthquake. A smothered roar, swelling into pealing thunder, ensued 
which appalled every mind. Immense volumes of smoke, thick and suffocating, instantaneously rolled over the city and the beleaguering camp, converting day into night. A horrible melange of timber, rocks, guns, and mutilated bodies of men, women, and children were hurled into the air through the storm cloud of war and fell in hideous ruin alike upon the besiegers and the besieged. At the moment when the explosion took place, one of the bishops in the church was reading the words of our Saviour, foretelling the peaceful reign of fraternity and of heavenly love. Henceforth there shall be but one flock and one shepherd. Strange contrast between the spirit of heaven and the woes of the fallen world. For a moment even the Russians, though all prepared for the explosion, were paralyzed by its direful effects but instantly recovering they raised this simultaneous shout god is with us and rushing over the debris of ruin and blood penetrated the city the tatars met them with the fury of despair appealing in their turn to allah and mohammed soon the russian banner floated over tottering towers and blackened walls though for many hours the battle raged with fierceness which human energies cannot exceed Prince Voratinsky, early in the afternoon, soiled with blood and blackened with smoke, rode from the ruins of the city into the presence of Ivan, and bowing, said, Sire, rejoice! Your bravery and your good fortune have secured the victory. Kazan is ours, the Khan is in your power, the people are slain or taken captive. Unspeakable riches have fallen into our hands. Let God be glorified, cried Ivan raising his eyes and his hands to heaven then taking the sacred standard in his own hands he entered the city planted the banner in one of the principal squares ordered a te deum there to be chanted and then directed that upon that spot the foundation should be laid of the first christian temple all the booty ivan surrendered to the army saying the only riches i desire are the repose and the honor of Russia. Then, assembling his troops around him, he thus addressed them. Valiant lords, generals, officers, all of you who in this solemn day have suffered for the glory of God, for religion, your country, and your emperor, you have acquired immortal glory. Never before did a people develop such bravery. Never before was so signal a victory gained. How can I suitably reward your glorious actions? And you who repose on the field of honor, noble children of Russia, you are already in the celestial realms, in the midst of Christian martyrs, and all resplendent with glory. This is the recompense with which God has rewarded you. But as of us, it is our duty to transmit your names to future ages, and the sacred list in which they shall be enrolled shall be placed in the temple of the Lord, that they may ever live in the memory of men. You, who bathed in your blood, still live to experience the effects of my love and my gratitude. All of you brave warriors now before me, listen attentively to my words, and repose perfect confidence in the promises I make to you this day, that I will cherish you and protect you 
to the end of my life. These were not idle words. Ivan personally visited the wounded, cheered them with his sympathy, and ever after watched over them with parental care. His brother-in-law Daniel was immediately sent an envoy to the empress and to the metropolitan bishop to inform them of the victory. The day was closed by a festival in a gorgeous tent where all the principal officers and lords were invited to dine with the Tsar. A proclamation was addressed to all the tribes and nations of the conquered region. Come, said the Russian Tsar, without fear to me. The past is forgotten, for perfidy has received its reward. I shall require of you only the tribute which you have heretofore paid to the Tsars of Kazan. On the 3rd of October, the dead were buried and the whole city was cleansed. The next day Ivan, accompanied by his clergy, his council, and the chiefs of his army, made his triumphal entrance and laid, on the designated spot, the cornerstone of the Cathedral Church of the Visitation. He also made the tour of the city, bearing the sacred banner, and consecrating Kazan to the true God. The clergy sprinkled holy water upon the streets and upon the walls of the houses, imploring the benediction of heaven upon this new rampart of Christianity. They prayed that the inhabitants might be preserved from all maladies, that they might be strengthened to repel every enemy, and that the city might forever remain the glorious heritage of Russia. Having traversed the whole city and the designated places for the erection of churches, the Tsar gave orders for the immediate rebuilding of the fortifications, and then, accompanied by his court, he took possession of the palace of the Khan, over which now floated the banners of the cross. It was thus that one of the most considerable principalities of the descendants of Genghis Khan fell into the hands of Russia. Kazan was founded upon the ruins of ancient Bulgaria, and, situated upon the frontiers of Russia, had long filled the empire with terror. Ivan immediately established a new government for the city and the surrounding region, which was occupied by five different nations, powerful in numbers and redoubtable in war. An army of about 10,000 men was left to garrison the fortresses of the city. On the 11th of October, the emperor prepared to return to Moscow. Many of the lords counseled that he should remain at Kazan until spring, that the more distant regions might be overawed by the presence of the army. But the monarch, impatient to see his spouse and to present himself in Moscow fresh from these fields of glory, rejected these sage counsels and adopted the advice of those who also wished to repose beneath the laurels they had already acquired. Passing the night of the 11th of October on the banks of the Volga, he embarked on the morning of the 12th in a barge to ascend the stream while the cavalry followed along upon the banks. The emperor passed one day at Sviazk and proceeded to Nizhny Novgorod. The whole city, men, women and children, flocked to meet him. They could not find words strong enough to express their gratitude for their deliverance from the terrible incursions of the horde. They fell at their monarch's feet, bathed his hands with their tears, and implored heaven's blessing upon him. From Nizhny Novgorod the emperor took the land route through Balakna and Vladimir to Moscow. On the way he met a courier from the Empress Anastasia announcing to him that she had given birth to a son 
whom she named Dmitri. The Tsar, in the tumult of his joy, leaped from his horse, passionately embraced Trachaniot, the herald, and then falling upon his knees with his tears trickling down his cheeks, rendered thanks to God for the gift. Not knowing how upon this spot to recompense the herald for the blissful tidings, he took the royal cloak from his own shoulders and spread it over Trahaniot, and passed into his hands the magnificent charger, from whom he the monarch had just alighted. He spent the night of the 28th of October in a small village but a few miles from Moscow, all things being prepared for his triumphant entrance into the capital the next day. With the earliest light in the morning he advanced toward the city. The crowd, even at that early hour, was so great that for a distance of four miles there was a but a narrow passage left through the dense ranks of the people for the Tsar and his guard. The Emperor advanced slowly, greeted by the acclaim of more than a million of his people. With uncovered head he bowed to the right and to the left, while the multitude incessantly cried, May heaven grant long life to our pious Tsar, conqueror of barbarians and saviour of Christians. At the gate he was met by the Metropolitan, the bishops, the lords, and the princes, ranged in order of procession under the sacred banner. Ivan the Fourth dismounted and addressed them in touching words of congratulation. The response of the Metropolitan was soulful, flooding the eyes of the monarch and exciting all who heard it to the highest enthusiasm. As for us, O Tsar, he said in conclusion, in testimony of our gratitude for your toils and your glorious exploits, we prostrate ourselves before you. At these words, the metropolitan, the clergy, the dignitaries and the people fell upon their knees before their sovereign, bowing their faces to the ground. There were sobbings and shoutings, cries of benedictions and transports of joy. The monarch was now conducted to the Kremlin, which had been rebuilt, and attended Mass in the Church of the Assumption. He then hastened to the palace to greet his spouse. The happy mother was in the chamber of convalescence with her beautiful boy at her side. For once at least there was joy in a palace. The enthusiasm which reigned in the capital and throughout all Russia was such as has never been surpassed. The people, trained to faith and devotion, crowded the churches, which were constantly open, addressing incessant thanksgiving to heaven. The preachers exhausted the powers of eloquence in describing the grandeur of the actions of their prince, his exertions, fatigues, bravery, the stratagems of war during the siege, the despairing ferocity of the Kazanians, and the final and glorious result. After several days passed in the bosom of his family, Ivan gave a grand festival in his palace on the 8th of November. The Metropolitan, the bishops, the abbeys, the princes, and all the lords and warriors who had distinguished themselves during the siege of Kazan were invited. Never, say the analysts, had there before been seen at Moscow a feat so sumptuous, joy so intense, or liberality so princely. The feat continued for three days, during which the emperor did not cease to distribute, with a liberal hand, proofs of his munificence. 
his bounty has extended from the metropolitan bishop down to the humblest soldier distinguished for his bravery or his wounds the monarch thus surrounded with glory beloved by his people the conqueror of a foreign empire and the pacificator of his own distinguished for the nobleness of his personal character and the grandeur of his exploits alikewise as a legislator and humane as a man was still but twenty-two years of age his career thus far presents a phenomenon quite unparalleled in history as soon as anastasia was able to leave her couch she accompanied the tsar to the monastery of troitsky where his infant son dmitri received the ordinance of baptism it seems to be the doom of life that every calm should be succeeded by a storm that days of sunshine should be followed by darkness and tempests early in the year fifteen fifty three tidings reached moscow that the barbarians at kazan were in bloody insurrection the russian troops had been worsted in many conflicts very many of them were slain the danger was imminent that the insurrection would prove successful and that the russians would be entirely exterminated from kazan the imprudence of the emperor in withdrawing before the conquest was consolidated was now apparent to all to add to the consternation the monarch himself was suddenly seized with an inflammatory fever the progress of the malady was so rapid that almost immediately his life was despaired of the mind of the tsar was unclouded and being informed of his danger without any apparent agitation he called for his secretary to draw up his last will and testament the monarch nominated for his successor his infant son dmitri to render the act more imposing he requested the lords who were assembled in an adjoining saloon to take the oath of allegiance to his son immediately the spirit of revolt was manifested many of the lords dreaded the long minority of the infant prince and the government of the regency which would probably ensue the contest loud and angry reached the ears of the king and he sent for the refractory lords to approach his bedside ivan burning with fever with hardly strength to speak and expecting every hour to die turned his eyes to them reproachfully and said who then do you wish to choose for your tsar i am too feeble to speak long dmitri though in his cradle is none the less your legitimate sovereign if you are deaf to the voice of conscience you must answer for it before god one of the nobles frankly responded sire we are all devoted to you and to your son but we fear the regency of yuriev who will undoubtedly govern russia in the name of an infant who has not yet attained his intellectual faculties this is the true cause of our solicitude to how many calamities we were not exposed during the government of the lords before your majesty had attained the age of reason it is necessary to avoid the recurrence of such woes the monarch was now too feeble to speak and the nobles withdrew from his chamber some took the oath to obey the will of the sovereign others refused and the bitter strife extended through the city and the kingdom the dissentients rallied round the prince vladimir and the nation was threatened with civil war the next day the tsar had revived a little 
and again assembled the lords in his chamber, and entreated them to take the oath of submission to his son and to Anastasia, the guardian of the infant prince. Overcome by the exertion, the monarch sank into state of lethargy, and to all seemed to be dying. But being young, temperate, and vigorous, it proved but the crisis of the disease. He awoke from his sleep calm and decidedly convalescent. Deeply wounded by the unexpected opposition which he had encountered, he yet manifested no spirit of revenge, though Anastasia, with woman's more sensitive nature, could never forget the opposition which had been manifested towards herself and her child. Ivan, during his sickness, had made a vow that in case of recovery he would visit in homage the monastery of St. Cyril, some thousand miles distant beyond the waves of the Volga. It is pleasant to record the remonstrance with Maxim, one of the clergy, made against the fulfillment of his wishes. You are about, said he, to undertake a dangerous journey with your spouse and your infant child. Can the fulfillment of a vow, which reason disapproves, be agreeable to God? It is useless to seek in desert that heavenly Father who fills the universe with His presence. If you desire to testify to heaven the gratitude you feel, do good upon the throne. The conquest of Kazan, an event so propitious for Russia, has nevertheless caused the death of many Christians. The widows, the mothers, the orphans of warriors who fell upon the field of honor are overwhelmed with affliction. Endeavor to comfort them and to dry their tears by your beneficence. These are the deeds pleasing to God and worthy of a czar. Nevertheless, the monarch persisted in his plan and entered upon the long journey. He buried his child by the way and returned overwhelmed with grief. But he encountered a greater calamity than the death of the young prince in bad advice which he received from Vasyan, the aged and venerable prince of Kolomna. Sire, had the unwise ecclesiastic, if you wish to become a monarch truly absolute, ask advice of no one, and deem no one wiser than yourself. Establish it as an irrevocable principle never to receive the counsels of others, but, on the contrary, give counsel to them. Command, but never obey. Then you will be a true sovereign, terrible to the lords. Remember that the counselors of the wisest princes always in the end dominate over them. The subtle poison which this disclosure distilled penetrated the soul of Ivan. He seized the hand of Vasyan, pressed it to his lips, and said, my father himself could not have given me advice more salutary. Bitterly was the prince deceived. Experience has proved that in the counsel of the wise and virtuous there is safety. There was no sudden change in the character of Ivan. He still continued for some years to manifest the most sincere esteem for the opinions of Sylvester and Adashev. But the poison of bad principles was gradually diffusing itself through his heart. A year had not passed away ere Ivan was consoled by the birth of another son. In the meantime, 
he devoted himself with ardor to measures for the restoration of tranquillity in Kazan. A numerous army was assembled at Nizhny Novgorod with orders to commence the campaign for the reconquest of the country as soon as the cold of winter should bridge the lakes and streams. The Tatars had made very vigorous efforts to repel their foes by summoning every fighting man to the field and by the construction of fortresses and throwing up of redoubts. In November of 1553, the storm of battle was recommenced on fields of ice and amidst smothering tempests of snow. For more than a month there was not a day without a conflict. In these incessant engagements the Tatars lost 10,000 men slain and 6,000 prisoners. 1,600 of the most distinguished of these prisoners, princes, nobles, and chieftains, who had been the most conspicuous in the rebellion, were put to death. Nevertheless, these severities did not stifle the insurrection. The Tatars, in banditti bands, even crossing the Volga, pillaging, massacring, and burning with savage cruelty. For five years the war raged in Kazan with every accompaniment of ferocity and misery. The country was devastated and almost depopulated. Hardly a chief of note was left alive. The horrors of war then ceased. The Russians took possession of the country, filled it with their own emigrants, reared churches, established Christianity, and spread over the community the protection of Russian law. Most of the Kazanians who remained embraced Christianity, and from that time, Kazan, the ancient Bulgaria, has remained an integral portion of the Russian Empire. Soon after a new conquest, more easy but not less glorious was added to that of Kazan. The city and province of Astrakhan, situated at the mouth of the Volga as it enters the Caspian, had existed from the remotest antiquity, enjoying wealth and renown, even before the foundation of the Russian Empire. In the third century of the Christian era, it was celebrated for its commerce, and it became one of the favorite capitals of the all-conquering Tatars. Russia, being now in the possession of all the upper waters of the Volga, decided to extend their dominions down the river to the Caspian. It was not difficult to find ample causes of complaint against pagan and barbaric hordes, whose only profession was robbery and war. Early in the spring of 1554, a numerous and choice army descended the Volga in Batol to the delta on which Astrakhan is built. The low lands, intersected by the branching stream, is composed of innumerable islands. The inhabitants of the city, abandoning the capital entirely, took refuge among these islands, where they enjoyed great advantages in repelling assailants. The Russians took possession of the city, prosecuted the war vigorously through the summer, and the Tsar, on the 20th of October, which was his birthday, received the gratifying intelligence that every foe was quelled and that the Russian government was firmly established on the shores of the Caspian. Well might Russia now be proud of its territorial greatness. The opening of these new realms encouraged commerce, promoted wealth, and developed to an extraordinary degree the resources of the empire. England was, at that time, far beyond the bounds of the political horizon of Russia. In fact, the Russians hardly knew that there was such a nation. 
Great Britain was not at that time a maritime power of the first order. Spain, Portugal, Venice, and Genoa were then the great monarchs of the ocean. England was just beginning to become the dangerous rival of those states whom she was already so infinitely surpassed in maritime greatness. She had then formed the project of opening a shorter route to the Indies through the North Sea, and in 1553, during the reign of Edward VI, had dispatched an expedition of three vessels under Hugh Willoughby in search of a northeast passage. These vessels, separated by a tempest, were unable to reunite, and two of them were wrecked upon the icy coast of Russian Lapland in the extreme latitude of 80 degrees north. Willoughby and his companions perished. Some Lapland fishermen found their remains in the winter of the year 1554. Willoughby was seated in a cabin constructed upon the shore, with his journal before him, with which he appeared to have been occupied until the moment of his death. The other ship, commanded by Captain Chancellor, was more fortunate. He penetrated the White Sea and, on the 24th of August, landed in the Bay of Dvina at the Russian monastery of St. Nicholas, where now stands the city of Archangel. The English informed the inhabitants, who were astonished at the apparition of such a ship in their waters, that they were bearers of a letter to the Tsar from the King of England, who desired to establish commercial relations with the great and hitherto almost unknown Northern Empire. The commandant of the country furnished the mariners with provisions, and immediately dispatched a courier to Ivan at Moscow, which was some six hundred miles south of the Bay of Divina. Ivan IV wisely judged that this circumstance might prove favorable to Russian commerce, and immediately sent a courier to invite Chancellor to come to Moscow, at the same time making arrangements for him to accomplish the journey with speed and comfort. Chancellor, with some of his officers, accepted the invitation. Arriving at Moscow, the English were struck with astonishment in view of the magnificence of the court, the polished address and the dignified manners of the nobles, the rich costume of the courtiers, and particularly with the jeweled and golden brilliance of the throne upon which was seated a young monarch decorated in the most dazzling style of regal splendor and in whose presence all observed the most respectful silence. Chancellor presented to Ivan IV the letter of Edward VI. It was a noble letter worthy of England's monarch, and, being translated into many languages, was addressed generally to all the sovereigns of the East and the North. The letter was dated London in the year 5517 of the creation and of our reign the 17th. The English were honorably received and were invited to dine with the Tsar in the royal palace, which furnished them with a new occasion of astonishment from the sumptuousness which surrounded the sovereign. The guests, more than a hundred in number, were served on plates of gold. The goblets were of the same metal. The servants, one hundred and fifty in number, were also in livery richly decorated with gold lace. The Tsar wrote to Edward that he desired to form with him an alliance of friendship conformable to the precepts of the Christian religion and of every wise government, 
that he was anxious to do anything in his power which should be agreeable to the king of england and that the english ambassadors and merchants who might come to russia should be protected treated as friends and should enjoy perfect security when chancellor returned to england edward the sixth was already in the tomb and mary bloody mary the child of brutal henry the eighth was on the throne the letter of ivan the fourth caused intense excitement throughout england every one spoke of russia as of a country newly discovered and all were eager to obtain information respecting its history and its geography an association of merchants was immediately formed to open avenues of commerce with this new world another expedition of two ships was fitted out commanded by chancellor to conclude a treaty of commerce with the tsar mary and her husband philip of spain who was son of the emperor charles v wrote a letter to the russian monarch full of the most gracious expressions chancellor and his companions were received with the same cordial hospitality as before ivan gave them a seat at his own table loaded them with favors and gave to the queen of england the title of my dearly beloved sister a commission of russian merchants was appointed to confer with the english to form a commercial treaty it was decided that the principal place for the exchange of merchandise should be at kolmogar on the bay of dwina nearly opposite the convent of st nicholas that each party should be free to name its own prices but that every kind of fraud should be judged after the criminal code of russia ivan then delivered to the english a diploma granting them permission to traffic freely in all the cities of russia without molestation and without paying any tribute or tax they were free to establish themselves wherever they pleased to purchase houses and shops and to engage servants and mechanics in their employ and to exact from them oaths of fidelity it was also agreed that a man should be responsible for his own conduct only and not for that of his agents and that though the sovereign might punish the criminal with the loss of liberty and even of life yet under no circumstances should he touch his property that should always pass to his natural heirs the port of st nicholas which for ages had been silent and solitary in these northern waters where the english had found but a poor and gloomy monastery the tomb as it were of hooded monks soon became a busy place of traffic the english constructed there a large and beautiful mansion for the accommodation of their merchants and streets were formed lined with spacious storehouses the principal merchandise which the english then imported into russia consisted of cloths and sugar the merchants offered twelve guineas for what was then called a half piece of cloth and four shillings a pound for sugar in fifteen fifty six chancellor embarked for england with four ships richly laden with the gold and produce of russia accompanied by joseph nepea an ambassador to the queen of england fortune which until then had smiled upon this hardy mariner now turned adverse tempests dispersed his ships and one only reached london chancellor himself perished in the waters upon the coast of scotland the ships dashed upon the rocks and the russian ambassador nepea barely escaped with his life arriving at london he was overwhelmed with caresses and presents 
the most distinguished dignitaries of the state and one hundred and forty merchants accompanied by a great number of attendants all richly clad and mounted upon superb horses rode out to meet him they presented to him a horse magnificently caparisoned and thus escorted the first russian ambassador made his entrance into the capital of great britain the inhabitants of london crowded the streets to catch a sight of the illustrious russian and thousands of voices greeted him with the heartiest acclaim a magnificent mansion was assigned for his residence which was furnished in the highest style of splendor he was invited to innumerable festivals and the court were eager to exhibit to him everything worthy of notice in the city of london he was conducted to the cathedral of st paul to westminster abbey to the tower and to all parks and palaces the queen received napea with the most marked consideration at one of the most gorgeous festivals he was seated by her side the observed of all observers the ambassador could only regret that the rich presents of furs and russian fabrics which the tsar had sent by his hand to mary were all engulfed upon the coast of scotland the queen sent to the tsar the most beautiful fabrics of the english looms and the most exquisitely constructed weapons of war such as sabres guns and pistols and the living lion and lioness animals which never before had been seen within the bounds of the russian empire in september fifteen fifty seven nepea embarked for russia taking with him several english artisans miners and physicians ivan was anxious to lose no opportunity to gain from foreign lands everything which could contribute to russian civilization the letter which mary and philip returned to moscow was flatteringly addressed to the august emperor ivan the fourth when the tsar learned all the honors and the testimonials of affection with which his ambassador had been greeted in london he considered the english as the most precious of all the friends of russia he ordered mansions to be prepared for the accommodations of their merchants in all the commercial cities of the empire and he treated them in other respects with such marked tokens of regard that all the letters which they wrote to london were filled with expressions of gratitude towards the russian sovereign in the year fifteen fifty seven an english commercial fleet entered the baltic sea and proceeded to the mouth of dina to establish there an entrepot of english merchandise the commander-in-chief of the squadron visited moscow where he was received with the greatest cordiality and thence passed down the volga to astrakhan that he might there establish commercial relations with the persia the tsar reposing entire confidence in the london merchants entered into their views and promised to grant them every facility for the transportation of english merchandise even to the remotest sections of the empire this commercial alliance with great britain founded upon reciprocal advantages without any commingling of political jealousies was impressed with a certain character of magnanimity and fraternity which greatly augmented the renown of the reign of ivan the fourth and which was a signal proof of the sagacity of his administration how beautiful are the records of peace when contrasted with the hideous annals of war the merchants of the other nations of southern and western europe were not slow to profit by the discovery that the english had made 
ships from holland freighted with the goods of that ingenious and industrious people were soon coasting along the bays of the great empire and penetrating her rivers engaged in traffic which neither russia or england seemed disposed to disturb while the tsar was engaged in those objects which we have thus rapidly traced other questions of immense magnitude engrossed his mind the tartar horde in Taurid, terrified by the destruction of the horde in kazan were ravaging southern russia with continual invasions which the tsar found it difficult to repress poland was also hostile ever watching for an opportunity to strike a deadly blow and sweden under gustavus vasa was in open war with the empire End of chapter 14